Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, I, it has been advertised I'm going to talk about the prayer book. And uh, I might get around to it. <laughs> but first, I, w- I want to talk about how we got to where we are as prayer book people. And that will help a little bit putting in perspective um, our prayer book and our current state of affairs, if you will, with that prayer book. In early Christianity, there was no liturgy. Obviously, they had no prayer book. So what did the early Christians do? Well, the ones that were in the Levant, yep, the ones that were in the Levant, which is the Holy Land, um, worshipped in the Jewish style even though now they had a new Savior and a new Messiah, they still worshipped in the Jewish style. Same musical instruments, same hymns, maybe just different words. Um, You know, when we hear about Paul's travels, um, you know, he's been thrown out of the best synagogues in Europe and stoned. I need, I need a microphone. Yeah. Only if we want to hear you. You're on Zoom. Well, nobody, nobody signed on yet. Oh. Well, in that case, no big deal. I'm managing things I don't need to manage. You're doing a great job of it. (laughs) There's a sermon in that. (laughs) You ask Elaine, there's a whole life. So, um, the earliest worship followed the Jewish format. Um, with many of the, and sometimes uh, actually in synagogues, as Paul pointed out, um, because they still, for a while, identified themselves as being Jewish, just enlightened. Now, we don't know, there's not a particular date. Um, per se, when Christians began to deviate from the uh, Jewish style of worship. What we do know is that there were some very early works that reflect uh, the beginning of liturgy, which is what our prayer book is. The, uh, probably the first uh, was a work that was written down um, in Greek, and it was called the Apostolic Traditions of Hippolytus. Hippolytus. I didn't do well in Greek at seminary. (laughs) And this uh, was originally believed to have been written in the second century after the death of our Lord. And more modern looks at this work and the documents that have been found indicate it was probably written in the first century, probably about the same time as John was writing his gospel and the book of Revelation. Now, it is believed that this book was developed by Christians in Egypt. And it was lost. 
They knew that it existed because they had letters, just like we have the letters um, for um, that Paul sent to the churches, which we have now put into our uh, Bible, into the New Testament. Well, there were other letters uh, that mentioned this specific apostolic tradition and the Egyptian origin of it, but nobody could lay their hands on the document, on the manuscript. And it remained a mystery until about 1890 when it was discovered again uh, and validated to be that document that had been missing for so many years. There is another document that dates from the beginning of the second century and this one is written in Greek and uh, it is believed to be of Greek origin and it is called the Didache which literally means instruction in Greek and it was it's it was described in its preamble they had a little preamble describing what what the book was, it was the teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles by the twelve apostles. So it claimed to have been written by the contributions of the twelve apostles. It is the oldest existing document that we can find that resembles a catechism, which is a preparation for baptism, a preparation for full Christian citizenship. It dealt with Christian ethics, how, how to treat uh, your fellow Christians and how to treat non-Christians. It detailed baptism and the rituals that would be associated with baptism. It affirmed a Trinitarian baptism, a baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which was a little bit different than the baptism that some Christians were doing, baptized in the name of Jesus, um, which many Protestant churches in the United States still do. I can remember when I was rector of St. Luke's in Live Oak, um, there was a, a young man who had moved to Jacksonville and was seeking to join the... Um, Greek Orthodox Church. And the Greek priest wrote to me and specifically asked me about this young man, had he been baptized, and was he baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Because if he hadn't been, he would have had to have been baptized again in the Greek tradition. This book, the Didache, also dealt extensively with the Eucharist. Now what I'm telling you, I'm trying to build up to the point where we get to our prayer book. Now, there were in the early days of Christianity five major churches in the Christian world. Can anybody name them? Nope. No. Nope. Alexandria. Alexandria uh, was one, yes. Alexandria, Rome, that's two. Constantinople. Constantinople, three. All are good. And where were people first called Christians? Antioch. Antioch, four. 
And where was James? Head of the church, Jerusalem. Okay. Those were the five churches. And people begin in, in our age think of Christianity as being really bifurcated, if you will. The Orthodox Church in the East and the Roman Church in the West. And that's how we look at Western history. And we forget that there were five churches until about the year mid-6th century when the people that had begun to follow the teachings of Muhammad came out of the desert and conquered Alexandria. They conquered Jerusalem. They conquered Antioch, leaving only two Christian churches unaffected, that being Constantinople that existed under siege until about 1452, and Rome, which was the great beneficiary of being the major church left that wasn't under siege. The liturgies developed in both the Orthodox Church and the Roman Church side by side. The liturgies in the East that were written down were substantial. Who's been to a, a, a Greek wedding or a Greek funeral? What do you remember about them? Were they long? It goes on and on. <laughs> it goes on and on. Like from the father, from the son, they do things three times. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Greek uh, and Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and and other Orthodox churches have very long liturgies. I mean, forever they go on. Rome, on the other hand, was famous for its brevity in its rituals. Um, anyway, these two coexisting brothers in Christianity maintained a relationship together, even though some were long-winded and some were short, um, until uh, about the year um, 10... I didn't write it down. 1054. I did write it down. When the two churches said, enough is enough, I'm done with you. And that was what was called the Great Schism, and they went their own ways. And was after the Third Crusade. Uh, just about, yes. The wrecking of Constantinople. The Venetians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, this split that occurred happened for a couple of reasons. One is. Um, should you use leavened or unleavened bread? That seems like a deal breaker, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and the, uh, another reason was the authority of the Pope. Does the Pope really have the keys, St. Peter's keys to God's kingdom? And is he uh, absolutely correct? Um, the Eastern Church um, disagreed with that. Um, and lastly, yes? Did they have a similar system in the East, or was it uh, more of like a congregation of bishops or whatever? Now, I don't know if terminology is picture. Hold that thought just for a second, because I'm going to get to it. It's a good question. Um, 
Anyway, the, the last reason that they split, and probably the reason that caused the split, was a theological issue called the Filioque Clause. And the Filioque Clause uh, is uh, in the Nicene Creed. It's not in the Nicene, original Nicene Creed that was written by the Council at Nicaea. It was added by the Roman Church specifically at the request of the Spanish clergy and bishops. Um, and Spain was a big contributor to the coffers of Rome. And the Filioque Clause has the Holy Spirit descending from the Father and the Son. The original Nicene Creed had the Holy Spirit only descending from the Father. That's the, that's the big argument that caused, in my opinion, and, and a lot of historians, the split. But getting to your question about clerical orders and organization, largely the Eastern Church and the Western Church, when I say Western Church at this point, I'm talking about the Roman Church, uh, had developed the orders of priest and bishop and deacon, and in some cases, subdeacons, um, and others that I can't even remember the names of. Um, and that was pretty well developed by the 5th century. Um, and then, and at that point in time, up until about the year 1100, clergy were allowed to be married. And in both the Orthodox and in the Roman Catholic Church, they were allowed to be married. That changed over time, <clears throat> and the, uh, the Orthodox churches allowed their priests to be married, which is a good thing. My wife's great-grandfather was a, was a priest, a Greek priest. She wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, but they could only be married if they were going to be a deacon and a priest if they, bishops could not ever have been married or be married in the Orthodox Church. The Roman Church, up until about the year, and don't hold me to the exact year, I would say approximately 1100, were allowed to be married. And it wasn't until there was concern over inheritance of wealth uh, that the Pope forbade them from being uh, married. And it remains that way to this day. But the clerical orders were, were well developed uh, in both the East and West, um, right on up through the 1400s. Did that answer your question? Or well, I was thinking like, it, was it that the Greek Orthodox did they like fall under the Pope? Is that also another kind of? No, uh, no they fell under the Metropolitan, which is essentially their their Pope. Yeah. Don't they don't they call the leader of the Greek Church the Patriarch? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, let's see. In the Eastern churches, we already talked about the length. The formality was also much more exaggerated than in the Western church, the Roman church. And the Eastern church was much more resurrection-focused. While the Western church became... Marian, very focused on Mary. 
which is interesting if you've ever seen Greek art, it always has the, the we call it the Madonna, they call it the Theokadis, which is God-bearer with the child. That is the traditional Greek icon. So they're very uh, aware and focused on Mary's role as the child-bearer, but the Romans took it a few steps higher and actually began to pray to and through her to God. Um, the Eastern Church also was very much more focused on the end of days, the eschaton, the, the culmination of God's creation. And... Um, Less so in Rome. Now, there's an interesting exception in liturgies and in prayer, written prayers. Uh, the exception in the West would be those churches in Gaul, which we would know as France today. Those churches had very elaborate, very similar to the Greek, different in liturgy, but very elaborate, ornate um, Eucharists. And they were actually forcibly suppressed by Rome. And the liturgies in Rome were simple and brief, short. All of the churches that I had mentioned earlier and that you had helped me mention, Alexandria, uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Constantinople, and Rome, all of them had developed liturgies. And one of the things as I begin to get into our prayer book is the rewrite of our prayer book borrows largely from the Eastern traditions, from the Egyptian tradition, from the tradition in Jerusalem and Antioch, less so from Constantinople, but still there's some influence uh, from the Orthodox Church there. Now, if you took Western civilization in college, which was required when I was there, Western civilization in college, if you took the course, uh, you would hear mostly about the Western church, about Rome. Uh, you wouldn't hear very much about the Eastern church. Um, in Rome, which is where our church descends from, uh, they developed what was called the Missal. And it was formally a prayer book that was used by priests. And it sat on the altar just like our missal does today for the priest to use. Uh, and it was in Latin. And if you happened to be in Rome and you spoke Latin, that was just fine. But if you happened to be in uh, the Low Countries or in France and you didn't speak Latin, you, were, you just listened and waited for your turn to come up for communion. Anyway, the Missal was an enforced liturgy in the Roman church, even into the, into the British Isles. And the British Isles, uh, again, our Anglican influence in our worship, they were the most resistant to the Roman liturgy because uh, they had embedded in their DNA the Celtic um, traditions, which were in many ways, contrary to Rome. Um, any questions so far? Yes. 
When you're talking about the filio clause, filio why is that an issue if they had already, Arianism had already been deposed, right? Uh -huh. and, and so... Well, it still exists today. There are, there are Arian churches today. But at that time, had they been deposed and now they had come to the, with the council, they had come to the agreement... That I, I would say suppressed. Trinity, right? Yeah, they... they the, the Trinitarian view was the most widely held view, both in the East and the West. So why was there a problem with how it descended from the <laughs> That's an hour. <laughs> Have you ever had a friend or, or somebody close to you who is Greek? Have I ever had a friend? Who is Greek? No. They're very stubborn people. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when did the Spanish uh, ask for that? Uh, it would have been about the uh, 10th century, 9th century. They were largely under Muslim rule then, though. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, the lower half was still under. And they didn't drive them out until actually uh, 1492. The yeah, the lower three quarters. It depends. <laughs> 75 yeah. They had already been pushed back from tours, and yeah. So it was uh, at that time just Castile and uh, Aragon. Aragon. <laughs> Gotta remember. The northern half or quarter or whatever it was, it's where all the money was. It was all the money going into Rome. So, Rome continues to be the predominant church in the West. And I'm going to stick with Rome because that's where our family tree heads um, for the time being. Think of it that way. That's our family tree. Over the next four or five centuries, there were a lot of things that happened in the Roman church, um, such as the Crusades. Somebody mentioned the Crusades earlier. Yeah, yeah. The Crusades, um, indulgences developed from the Crusades. Many times, a nobleman would have an army that he had raised. When we say army, you know, maybe it's a couple hundred men. And he would go to the Pope and say, you know, I want to go to the Holy Land. I'll take my army and I'll go fight on your behalf uh, if you forgive me of my sins. And uh, the Pope says, deal. You're forgiven your sins. Take your army and go and fight for the Lord. Out of that concept, uh, which may have been very noble in the beginning, uh, there Arrive, arose a tradition of selling indulgences where if you had a friend or a relative who had been uh, bad in this life uh, and he had gone to purgatory and he was stuck there, you could go and give money to the church and the pope or the archbishop or the bishop would offer a forgiveness and your, um, your relative would be released from purgatory uh, to go to heaven. Um, and it became, as when anything with humans and money, it became a very corrupt thing. And so by the time we get to the 1500s, uh, there are many um, Roman Catholics who are aware of the situation and are appalled by it. And one of them was a priest in Germany, and his name was Martin Luther. 
You've heard that name before. Martin Luther wrote several books. He wrote a bunch of objections that he had and went down to the church uh, and nailed them to the door where the bishops were meeting, demanding that they be addressed. I'm not going to go through all. I think there were 99? 95. 95. Throw in four more. So 95. And um, Luther wrote a book called The Babylonian Captivity, where he talked about how Rome had captured and held the church prisoner. And Luther's, and this is greatly oversimplified, and and please expound if any of you would like it more. Um, Lutheran insisted that the seven sacraments of the church were nonsense, my words, not Luther's, um, and that there actually were only three sacraments. I bet you thought I was going to say two. Um, three. Those would be the Eucharist, baptism, and forgiveness of sins, penitence, were the three that Luther originally said should be sacraments. The others are just rituals that we have um, to bring forward God's power in the church, um, a positive power. In his treatise, Luther took up the issue of the Eucharist. Uh, He takes exception with the Roman doctrine of transconfiguration, and that's where the body and blood, the bread and the wine, actually become physically the body and blood of Jesus. Luther says it doesn't quite work that way. He also takes issue with matrimony, um, ordination, confirmation, and the other. Um, Luther and others were at this point attempting to redefine liturgy and theology at the same time to bring about something that made sense in the Western world in 1530, say. Now, there were others. There, was, uh, there were re- Reformed uh, church leaders, Zingli, uh, Zingli and Calvin, Zwingli and Calvin, uh, they're the most famous. Also, Melanchthon, who later teamed up with, with Luther. Um, and they basically started the Protestant Reformation. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about our ancestral family tree. And we are still, as Anglicans, connected to Rome. And Henry has this wife who he would like to be rid of, uh, who was Catherine. She was a Spanish princess who was the sister, if I believe, or, or some close relative of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles. And Henry wants to be rid of her. And he's not quite sure how to do that. Um, but in the meantime, Henry does enough, I mean, yeah, Henry VIII does enough that he is rewarded 
by the Pope as being called Defender of the Faith. He's given a new title, Defender of the Faith. Well, along with that title becomes some serious thinking in England about how the church works and how it should fit together and relate or not relate to the Roman church. Thomas More and this young priest who happened to be the chaplain to the king's court, a guy by the name of Charles Cramner, um, believed that, as Paul said, God appoints the kings and princes, and uh, they are superior to the Pope in Rome. So they were royalists in their focus. Now Henry takes this young priest who was educated at uh, Cambridge and says, Charlie, my boy. <laughs> I doubt he actually said that. I mean, Thomas Grammer. Yeah, Thomas. Tommy, my boy. I hope so he's not very Irish. I want you to go to Germany and I want you to be ambassador to the German princes. Now, keeping in mind that Germany at that time wasn't a country. It was, I don't know how many prince and dukedoms there were, but there were bunches of them. And the, some princes had voting rights in the Holy Roman Empire. They were called peers, and, and um, they had influence and wealth. Some were lesser. Um, but it was Cramner's job to go and to learn and to represent Henry in all of these courts in Germany. Well, at this time, uh, Cramner was exposed to the thoughts of Luther. And they began to, to sink in. He also falls in love. Now, he's a priest, and he is secretly married. Um... So he had skin in the game, if you, if you want to call it that. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he wanted to help Henry get free of the Pope. And goes back and tells Henry all the things he's learned in Germany about Luther's um, thoughts. And he is appointed archbishop. Now he's still secretly got a wife. Now it's suddenly okay. And Henry's working on subsequent wives at this point. <laughs> and uh, Cramner begins to um, write what would be a new liturgy, new prayer books. And he writes pretty much by himself with some help the prayer book of 1549 and the prayer book of 1552. He also introduces and is largely influenced by what would be later whittled down and called the 39 Articles of Faith, which is in the back of our prayer book as a historic document. And that, uh, yes? 
I would emphasize that he wrote them in English. Yes, in the vernacular. vernacular. In the vernacular, yes. Yeah. Uh, just a generation before, uh, people had been put to death for writing the Bible, interpreting the Bible. Yeah. In English. So they were in English for those that could read, could read. Um, and those that could just hear understood the words that were being read by the priest. You know, those, uh, some churches use bells uh, at certain points during the service. The, the bells originate to let people know who couldn't understand the Latin what was going on where, where they were in the service. Uh, and they've continued, you know, we get into traditions and we hold on to them. So at this point, um, after a small detour uh, with Mary on the throne, we get back to having a Protestant England and a prayer book and uh, the developing of the English church. Subsequently, in, in England, uh, there were two additional prayer books written, one in 1559. So we got 1549, 1552, and 1559. 1559 is still largely Cramner's work. He's dead at this point, but it's borrowed and brought forward. The last prayer book that the English church has adopted, and it is still officially the prayer book of the English church, is the 1662 prayer book. A church I served while I was in seminary uh, was founded in 1682. And the 1662 prayer book was still, they still referred to it at that church as the new prayer book. <laughs> and they're no different than Episcopalians today. <clears throat> but obviously something happened in 1775 and 1776 through 1780 that um, changed the world for us in America is that, that we could no longer be the Church of England. My goodness, we just fought to throw off a king who was a tyrant, and we can't very well call ourselves the Church of England. So what are we going to do? What do we call it? And they thought, well, we're, we base our, our primary worship on bishops, and in Greek, that would be Episcopal. We're going to call our church the Episcopal Church, led by bishops. Only problem is, they didn't have any bishops. All the bishops were in England. You see, the clergy in the colonies, um, if nothing else, Henry, I mean, uh, George was, was smart. Uh, he knew that if the clergy weren't loyal to him, that things would quickly get out of hand. And all the clergy in, in what became the United States, the United Colonies and then the United States, had to be, go through a litmus test with the Bishop of London. And the Bishop of London supervised the clergy in the colonies. So after the war was successful, we wound up with no bishop. A lot of the priests had pled because they were loyal to the king and we couldn't ordain additional churches. What do we do? We can't consecrate our own. That would be too Wesleyan, um, which is what Charles Wesley was accused of, and John Wesley. Um, 
So they sent their choice to be bishop to Scotland secretly. He rode ashore through customs patrols at night, was consecrated by three Scottish bishops. Scots never did like English. <laughs> he snuck back out through the customs patrol boats, came back to America. His name was Samuel Seabury, our first bishop of the Episcopal Church. We couldn't continue to use the prayer book of the Church of England. At the seminary I attended in Virginia, um, Virginia Theological Seminary, they have an a, um, antique book room that's climate controlled. When you go in, you have to put on gloves. And I got the honor of going in with the head librarian one time and looking at uh, this prayer book of the Church of England, 1662, that had pen marks drawn through the king, through parliament. Uh, you know, all the prayers were edited, and then in the margins it was written, President of the United States, the Congress of the United States. And that's, so that's what they used for a few years. And the first American prayer book was thrown together in 1789. And it was conservative, following the Scottish tradition uh, in which Seabury had been consecrated as bishop. And the 1789 prayer book was largely in use with minor changes about every 25 years. I mean, just minor changes, little tweaks, until 1892. So that's 103 years they used a prayer book. Largely the same. The Eucharist would be very, very similar, almost identical, except uh, in the wording would have been a little bit updated in the um, 1892 prayer book as we use today in Rite 1, being almost identical. The 1789 prayer book, guess how many years it, it was used? Wild guess. Nope. Uh, it's an unfair question. It didn't go 103 years, only 36 years, and they're already chomping at the bit to write a new prayer book. You know, let, let's get something new and modern. You know, we're now in, by this point, we're now in the, um, um, the 20th century. And in 1928, uh, they completed another prayer book. And that was the prayer book that I grew up with. And if I'm not careful celebrating the Eucharist, I will slip back into that <laughs> wording in a heartbeat. Father Joe has corrected me a couple of times. He says, you need to read no, not use your memory. Um, the 1928 prayer book was beloved. And oh my goodness, do you remember the... the um, do some of you remember the interim prayer books that we used? They came with yellow, they came with blue, they came with pink, and then there was a zebra-striped cover. The, these were paper-bound books. They were trial liturgies before we got the book, prayer book of 1979. 
And they were trying everything. And some of it was really beautiful. And some of it, oh my goodness. <laughs> but that's where we wind up uh, today with our prayer book of 1979. Um, and I'll close just with where I'm going in the future, future next week. The new prayer book was developed because the world had changed. There was an explosion of knowledge. There was telegraph. There was telephones. There were radio. There was television. Um, anthropologically, sociology, psychology, psychologically, pastorally, the world had changed. And the mothers and fathers of the church that served on the committee wanted to recall to modern Christian memory the traditions and the imagery of the early Christian church. That was the focus. There are two major differences in the new prayer book. 1979, not so new. Um, it's been 44 years. The... The new prayer book looked at baptismal rite and it looked at the Eucharist and made substantial changes. Um, the Eucharist was more focused on the Paschal memory. Um, it borrowed largely from Eastern churches in theology. The baptismal emphasized the Trinitarian. Um, the prayer book tried to encompass in all that it was doing the breadth of Christian history. And we, but we have to recognize some other outside influences. Anybody else guess what one of those outside influences might be? Women burn things. W what? Women burn things. Women the presence of women in vote, voting uh, in the workplace and having a, a big social role in society was definitely one of them. But Vatican II, we have nothing to do with the Roman church, but we took notice of what went on in Vatican II. Uh, for example, the altar in this church stands away from the wall and the priest stands behind it. That's Vatican too. And there are other subtle issues. Took notice of what was going on in Lambeth, uh, which is the Palace of Lambeth where the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury has a responsibility for the Anglican Communion worldwide. The Church of New Zealand to the Church of, um, at that time it would have been Rhodesia all had to be included in the concepts that would go into this new prayer book. Next week, I will talk about the Eucharist and the baptism and what the major changes are. Any questions that I can answer? Yes, going way back to the beginning of uh, the talk here, you talk about the early, Jew uh, early Jewish services. Yes. And how there were early Christian services using the Jewish mm -hmm. format, basically. How would they have incorporated Eucharist into that? Um, they would have eaten after the service. It would have been it would have been an agape meal. Very literal, I mean, 
Okay, cool. Yep. Same thing as in Corinth. Exactly. Where, where Peter yep. is, not Peter, where Paul. Paul. Paul is writing about how you're doing the Eucharist yep. after the service. Yep. And you need to wait for the poor people to arrive to eat. That was the big, and not the rich people eat first. Right. Okay, any other questions? Are there any changes contemplated to the book? Well, I would be just happy if it went as long as the 1789 prayer book. How long did I say that was? 103 years? Yeah, I, I don't want to have to change again. <laughs> but at some point it will happen. That's what we can pitch Any other questions? Okay, thank you very much.